0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a Father who gives us good things. And we thank you that you fight for us. And uh, we thank you that you're willing to sacrifice much in order to have us, even your own Son, And we pray that we might see him clearly this day, having been crucified, but now risen, glorious in a body, victorious over the grave. O Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see him. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear his voice, calling us by name, just as he did Mary at the tomb. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts to rejoice in him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. There is a, a story attributed to uh, the prophet named Aesop that I want to begin with this morning. Doubtless you've heard it before, but it being a short story, I will repeat it for you now. It goes a little like this. There was once a a countryman who possessed the most wonderful goose you can imagine. For every day when he visited the nest, the goose had laid a beautiful glittering golden egg. The countryman took the eggs to market and soon began to get rich. But it was not long before he grew impatient with the goose, because she gave him only a single golden egg a day. He was not getting rich fast enough. Then one day, after he had finished counting his money, the idea came to him that he could get all the golden eggs at once by killing the goose and cutting it open. But when the deed was done, not a single golden egg did he find, and his precious goose was dead. The word of the Lord. No. (laughs) This is not the word of the Lord. But I do joke in that way, because Aesop's fable about the goose and the golden egg is not too far from what the Apostle Paul says about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15-19. Speaking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the thing that Christians celebrate on Easter, right? Paul writes, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And it is with this verse in the entirety of our New Testament passage that I want to begin for in this verse, Paul is teaching a lesson that runs parallel to Aesop's story of the goose and the golden egg. And Aesop's story is about a man who neglected the, so, the source of his happiness, and in this, which in this case was a goose. And instead, he, he relished the benefits the goose daily bestowed on him, which was, in his case, a golden egg. And in prioritizing the egg, he failed to attend to the goose. And in the end, he ended up with nothing. He sacrificed the goose to get the egg, and he lost both. And one of Paul's points in 1 Corinthians 15 is that belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead provides many great and wonderful benefits to those living in this broken world. And he identifies some of those for us. In verse 18, Paul teaches that the resurrection is a source of comfort for those who are grieving the death of a loved one in this world. If there is life beyond death for those who died in Christ, then there is hope and comfort in knowing that our loved ones live on after death in the blissful presence of Jesus Christ our Lord. They are there happily awaiting the day when their souls will be reunited with unbroken bodies and they will resume their lives on a recreated earth where no tick of the clock marks off their remaining time and no corrupting disease eats at their flesh and mind. Missy, Natalie, Elizabeth, all those who loved Glenn can derive true comfort from this belief. The Hyde family has reason for hope, even as they grieve Todd's unexpected, tragic death. The Cowles have confidence that Mike is alive with Jesus now. Nancy, too, is comforted by the same hope for Ken. Connor, his dad John, have some measure of peace mixed into their grief when they allow themselves to think of Judy and Jesus. There are many others of you in this congregation for whom belief in the resurrection brings great comfort and healing. As you go about living your lives in a world absent of your loved one, it's a great benefit of the resurrection. They live on with Christ. In verse 17, Paul points out another benefit of believing in the resurrection The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means our sins have been forgiven. As Christ rose from the dead where he had descended under the weight of our guilt, we rose with him through faith. We even ascended with Christ to the throne of grace where we are welcomed and greeted as a pardoned people. In Christ, we are set free from our guilt And our shame so that in this world we can enjoy a great sense of peace and rest. Through faith in Christ, humanity is reconciled to God our creator. And there's this this feeling of harmony that fills us as we again hear our creator re-articulate his ancient assessment of his creatures. Good. Very good. The resurrection means that through faith our sins have been forgiven us on account of Christ. The resurrection also means that Christ is a mighty victor, more power than death itself. He's a king, just as Pilate had written above his cross. And he's a king who fights for his people. In verse 25, Paul says that Jesus will reign until all his enemies have been conquered. And in verse 24, Paul tells us that Jesus will destroy every ruler, authority, and power. See, Jesus rescues a, a spiritually and physically afflicted people. And it's admittedly hard to trace his hand when you're in the heat of temptation or suffering or hardship, but Jesus holds tightly each and every one of his children. His reach descends down into the grave even for, from where he pulls his people up out of the pit. In this world, therefore, there is no darkness where he is not present to lend his light. There is no fire so hot that his presence cannot be a balm. There is no storm so violent that he cannot calm. It takes faith to believe this. Because as Dr. King reminds us, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And it is God who bends history towards justice, the risen King. It's difficult for us to trace, but the resurrection and the enthronement of Jesus give us confidence and comfort in this life that it is indeed so. It will be well. And of course, there are many, many more benefits of this belief in Jesus as the one who died and was and re- rose again in our place. Paul obviously does not spell out all the benefits in 1 Corinthians 15. He's He's left open a, a window of opportunity for modern sociologists to conduct their studies and add to his list. And indeed, they've done just that, right? For example, Christian Smith is a sociologist who's conducted extensive studies and analysis on the religious and spiritual lives of teenagers. He observes that Ironically, contrary to many youth's own inability to see or articulate the influence or importance of religion in their lives, religion does, in fact, appear to be a significant factor that does make a considerable difference in a host of life outcomes. And the most religious teenagers, he observes, are more involved in their communities and have healthier familial relationships, are more honest, more compassionate, are happier, don't engage in as, as much in illicit or harmful behaviors. The benefits of, of this faith and this, this risen Lord are many and great. But we, but we must never forget that these things, the comforts, the confidences, the life outcomes, these things are the golden egg and not the goose. These things are the benefits of a faith in a resurrected Christ. They are not Christ. Christ. And what we celebrate today is not an idea. It's not an idea that fills us with comfort or confidence, but a person who is truly, who is truly dead and has come alive again in a physical body. You see, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he ate with them to prove he was no ghost. He encouraged them to to touch his body, feel the warmth of his skin. This was no spirit. This was a person, the Son of God incarnate. No other religion offers a God who truly became a human being, yet retained his deity. It's only Christianity. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as a human being means that God remains committed. Even after the cross, even after his great accomplishment that he came to earth for, God remains committed to his physical creation. He literally has skin in the game. And God intends to make all things new again, beginning with you. He intends to comfort you, to convict you, to change you, to fill you with confidence. He intends to give you good things and to welcome you at the end of your life into joy and rest and a life of true significance found in humble service of God. All these things he desires to give you because he loves you. All these things he can give you because he is the victorious king of creation, the resurrected Lord. But he asks that you attend to him and not to his benefits. He desires your fellowship for you to speak with him to listen to him in silence, to eat his flesh and blood, to mimic him in service, to follow him into the grave, to take up his word and read. I've already mentioned Christian Smith in a a sociological analysis of interviews conducted with parents describing how they transmit their faith to their children. Smith came to some concerning realizations. In his conclusion, he writes that for most, religion is primarily a good resource for getting along well in this life, for coping, for succeeding, and maintaining good relationships. Things like correct doctrine, worship, spirituality, and denominational distinctives are not the issue. Practical, this worldly help is primarily what matters for the majority of even quite religiously involved American parents, religion is a matter that is often essentially instrumental and therapeutic. It's this last observation that Smith makes, which is most troubling to me, that for the majority of even quite religiously involved American parents, religion is a matter that is often essentially instrumental and therapeutic. This is most troubling to me because of what Tim Keller often points out about sin, that sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is, he says, primarily idolatry. And an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So we're capable of making idols out of comfort, out of rest even, or any of the other good gifts that God bestows upon his children. To pursue Jesus for the sake of some benefit is to elevate the benefit over Jesus. It's to turn that thing into an idol and God then becomes the instrument to get our true desire. And so we use him to get what we really want. We sacrifice him to get the golden egg. We end up with nothing. Our desires drive us to neglect and destroy the sources that provide us with those things that delight and comfort us. And this is a, it's a principle of fallen humanity that reappears over and over again in a variety of places, right? We see it in our oceans, where our appetite for fish has led to unsustainable fishing practices and the disappearance of entire species of fish. There's there's this great documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Maybe you've seen it where these men sit around in this sushi restaurant bemoaning the increasing unavailability, unavailability of certain varieties of fish. And it's a bit ironic that they bemoan this at a sushi bar for it's their appetite for those fish that has driven the unsustainable practices right, that led to their extinction. But this is what I'm talking about when I say, if you neglect the source, focus on the benefits, then you end up with neither. Neglect the ocean and you'll lose both it and its occupants. It's the same way with Jesus. Neglect him in favor of the idea of him, or for one of his many benefits, and you'll possess nothing in the end. When it becomes apparent that you loved comfort more than Christ, who was its source. You know, he required nothing of you. Can we not at least respond in kind? Or rejoicing over the grace of God and overlooking our sins to bring about forgiveness Are we so ungrateful to demand further kindnesses of him? Is he not enough on his own? If you attend to Jesus and you are satisfied in him alone, he will give you good things. But the strangest thing will happen. They will not have any hold on you. You'll be truly free of them. You'll enjoy the comforts and the confidences and the successes in life when they are there, but you'll not need them. Your faith won't rely on them. You'll be free. And this was exactly the point the Apostle Paul was making in what is perhaps the most misquoted verse of Scripture. In Philippians 4.13, the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's on coffee mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers, greeting cards, tattooed on your arm. But what is almost universally left off all those tacky items is the preceding verse, verse 12. In Philippians 4.12, Paul writes, I know what it's like to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All things that Paul can do are not great and impressive deeds. The all things Paul says Christ strengthens him to do is to endure nothing to endure poverty and also to endure riches which is just as much a trial as poverty Paul says that he's learned the secret of having much and having little and that secret is being satisfied with Christ alone he requires nothing more and he is content characteristic in low supply in the world and even in our own hearts. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, the risen King of creation is more than enough for any and all of us. He bids us come and taste and see that he is good. He died for us. He rose for us. He now lives for us because he loves us. He was content to love us as we were and are. Let us then learn to be content with him alone as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.